Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Jeremy Hunt says he's had to take horrible decisions for his autumn statement. Horrible for whom? I hear listeners cry. For... It's deeply unwise, I think, to conduct fiscal policy in this way at this time. We need more beds, we need more tests, we need more doctors, we need more care workers. Nothing works. We're on our own. Don't get ill. Don't get old. One. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Well, it's Autumn Statement Time, co-pilot. An event sent to be so miserable that even the likes (laughs) of you and me, armed with Planet Normal's trusted combination of chin-up humour and bonhomie, will struggle to get a laugh out of it. Recording this prior to Thursday morning statements as we are... Chancellor Jeremy Hunt looks set to unleash a barrage of stealth taxes, freezing thresholds so more and more modestly played, not particularly wealthy households are dragged into higher income tax brackets, denied child benefit payments and stung by inheritance tax on very modest homes. That means that even if tax rates don't go up themselves, the UK's tax burden, the share of our economy accounted for by tax, most certainly will. Already around 36%, that tax burden is at a 70-year high. And under Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and Chancellor Hunt, it's now set to rise higher still. No matter that the cost of living spiralling, borrowing costs are rising, and the UK economy has stalled, with GDP contracting between July and September, compared to the same quarter in 2021. Can you really tax your way out of a recession, Alison? It sounds like a question from that A-level economics paper that you never got around to taking. (laughs) But it's a question now of pressing importance to the entire country. So what say you, Dr Velma? Professor Velma, if you don't mind. (laughs) Economics A-level, pa. You're too busy messing about with Shakespeare and French and all those girly subjects. (laughs) Comes in handy when you need the apposite quotation. Oh, God, I'll come up with something from King Lear for later to sum up our plight on the blasted heath. I was going to say that in the Planet Normal Kitty, which, you know, we keep back of the rocket in an old Quality Street tin. And I think I looked and we've got £1.39. So I thought maybe a bag of chips and a couple of cans of Tizer. What do you think? You just about get a bounty bar for £1.39 <laughs> these days. Crikey. I used to go to the shops. If I was really good, I got 10p. Mm. And if I wasn't so good, I got 5p. But even with 5p, you could get a Freddo chocolate bar and some of those flying saucer things. Do you remember the flying saucers? Four for a penny. They used to be called thirst quenchers. And you had sort of sherbet in them. That's right. I was actually going to start off by saying that Jeremy Hunt, by the time listeners are listening to this, would be at least leaving us with the clothes we stand up in. But I fear I may have been a bit premature. The shirt stealth tax is on its way. <laughs> Hang on to your small again. I love the fact Jeremy Hunt says he's had to take horrible decisions. Horrible decisions for his autumn statement. Horrible for whom? I hear listeners right. cry. Why? People with the broader shoulders will bear the heaviest burden, says the Chancellor. And according to Jeremy Hunt, the British middle classes have got the combined shoulders of Michael Phelps and Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's looking pretty grim, isn't it, really? Very, very ambitious to alienate your entire core base, I think, for the Conservative Party, even given their recent transgressions. I had a piece in the paper yesterday, Wednesday, and as we're recording this, there were about 3,000 slightly intemperate comments, shall we say. God, they're cross, Liam. They're so cross. But how did we get to a situation where apparently the conventional wisdom is to raise taxes into a recession when monetary policy, that is borrowing costs, 
are also going up, when monetary policy is tightening. That is not conventional economics at all. And yet we've got to a position where anyone that doesn't advocate that is seen as some kind of libertarian jihadist, to quote one Tory (laughs) backbencher. A lot of this stems from a complete misreading of that trust quatang budget. As you and I warned at the time, Alison. You warned, I nodded, but yes. The reason the trust quatang budget spooked the markets was because it was parts of it were politically very high-handed, particularly lowering the top rate of tax, albeit to the same level it was under Tony Blair. But the main reason was the cost of the energy price cap, a completely open-ended commitment by the state to deliver fuel, gas and electricity bills, at a maximum price, whatever was happening in the wholesale energy markets. And since then, the price of gas, the spot price of gas, has come down from over €300 per megawatt hour down to around just over 100 and it was below 100 at one point. The cost of that energy price cap, and Jeremy Hunt rightly, I think, has curtailed it now to six months rather than two years open-ended for households. But it is still a major economic commitment but it's much diminished now. And that's the main reason, plus the fact that the dollar's weakened slightly, that the pound has recovered, and why borrowing costs in the UK are now much lower. Lower, in fact, than they were just before the mini-budget. This idea that the UK is, quotes, shot out of the gilt markets, as so many political correspondents now say, is complete nonsense. Our borrowing costs are lower than France, are lower than the United States. Mm. We're not shut out of the gilt markets at all. And I think we're in danger of raising taxes to such a degree, albeit without admitting it, because we're doing it via these ghastly stealth taxes, playing with thresholds. But we are at the point of raising the tax burden to such a point that we drive our economy into an even deeper recession. And I'm astonished that Sunak and Hunt between them haven't got the kind of intellectual grit to push back and to say, we're not going to raise the tax burden above its current 70-year high, particularly not at the time of economic slowdown. It's a huge lack of imagination and a lack of political and intellectual courage, in my view. When Jeremy Hunt says he's taking horrible decisions, I think, no, you're taking easy, cowardly decisions. You are not prepared to incur unpopularity with the opposition benches or the left-wing media by slashing a bloated and underperforming public sector. I mean, God forbid we should get any value out of the 150 billion we hand the NHS every year. Much easier to pick on small businesses. As you said, some of the people are going to be dragged into these higher rates or senior nurses, ironically. I mean... 50 grand plus is going to get you dragged into a higher rate. It could be that we're heading for 20% of the working population going to be paying some part of their salary being taxed at the higher rate. Now, I do know, Slim, as we're recording, some of the Tory backbenchers are discovering their spine. We've seen Esther McVeigh saying she will not be supporting any tax rises until HS2 is scrapped. Something I mentioned in my column today, HS2 heading well north now of 100 billion. I mean, just make up a figure, really, for that ridiculous train that is going to knock 15 minutes off the journey to Birmingham when everybody's working from home anyway. You know, I was up in Cheshire recently, and they were all saying they wanted a train to go across the country. They wanted to go to Hull or Blackpool or something, which you can't get to for love nor money, but they're going to have this ludicrous train, which is mainly going to be taking people to London. So it's going to be levelling down rather than levelling up. I've got lots of questions for you, but I just feel in my gut, obviously i As various readers point out, I don't have an economics degree. But in my gut, I'm thinking this sounds like another project fear to me. Oh, we've got this, you know, £58 billion black hole. If we don't fill it, all these dire things will happen to us. I mean, as you keep saying, we're actually our debt to GDP ratio is considerably better than many comparable countries. But as far as I know, they're not embarking on a project of hair shirt austerity. We seem to have been barely come out of the last one. Why? Why is our government, a conservative government, so determined to inflict 
more punishment on its only a shockingly small percentage of the population is still agreeing to go to work, Liam. I mean, it's unbelievable. I think it's only 31 million adults. We just heard this week how many British adults have opted out of working entirely. Now, why are they? What's going on? Why are they doing this? Do they genuinely think we're in a terrible position or is it some strategy to get just up to the next election and then spring some tax cuts? Is it that cynical? I think when future historians look back on this period, which is often a word construction, I use Alison when I'm about to say something that no one else agrees with. <laughs> History will be on my but side. When they look back, I alone was saying. Yes, go on, go on. <laughs> a prophet only celebrated on planet normal and not in that's his right. own world. Yeah. That's right, that's right. My little sandwich board in the sky. <laughs> I think this will be seen, the situation we're in now, not so much as a cost of living crisis, though it is a cost of living crisis, of course, and not only to our lower income and more vulnerable households, it's a cost of living crisis for all but the extremely well-heeled and the super rich. But it really is a cost of lockdown crisis. That's what we've got here. We are fiscally in the hole to the extent we are because we spent hundreds of billions of pounds on furlough, on lockdown. We have a shortage of labour, not particularly because of Brexit, because there are more people of EU birth working here than there were before the Brexit referendum, but because so many people, well over a million people, have completely left the workforce, even though they're of working age. And quite a lot of them are on sickness and other forms of benefits. And some of them have just dropped completely off the radar altogether, like a lot of school children have, by the Mm. way. But that's a different, though, of course, very, very important discussion. I think we've got into a situation where we were so kind of spooked by the fact that the bond markets actually exist. And there is a limit to the extent to which you can borrow, particularly when the Bank of England at the same time is selling gilts back to the market on a day that was almost seemed to me to be designed to scupper the government's plans, a government who, of course, were challenging the Bank of England in terms of its remit, a government that was willing to kick some shins at the Treasury to try and get some new thinking and to try and do things in a different way, a change that, in my view, remains very, very important. No, you're saying this in you a know, very well-modulated way. Is this institutional battling with the government of the day? I think there is absolutely institutional battling with any government that wants to rein in the borders of the state. I don't think that's a conspiratorial thing to say. I think to not understand that is to be naive. You haven't been paying attention if you don't understand that. Of course that's the case. There are lots of civil servants who don't like the government's agenda and they may not go out deliberately to sabotage it, though some will and have, but they're not going to go out their way to implement it. And I think there was an awful lot of pencil sucking and not particularly low-key tut-tutting from the economics policy-making establishment, the Treasury and the Bank of England, who do have a very set way of looking at things, who don't really model in what we call dynamic terms when they think about the economy. So they think of a tax cut as an absolute loss of revenue, right? They don't necessarily think that, oh, but you might get more growth, so then you might get more revenue. A lot of our economics establishment, the messages of which are just swallowed as unalloyed truth by most of our media, think in those kind of comparative static terms, as we say in economics, rather than in dynamic terms. And I don't necessarily think in most cases there's bad faith at all. I just think that's the way they think. They're quite institutionalised people. A lot of economists in business think very differently because they're, you know, they live in the real world where they have to meet payroll from their own revenues and they're not reliant on state financing. So I think there is a genuine bias towards increasing taxes, increasing the size of the state. And I think it runs all the way through much of our political and media class. And those who want to see a smaller, more efficient state, a state that still absolutely looks after the most vulnerable, but also encourages dynamism and entrepreneurialism, I think they've been marginalised in the public debate a lot in recent years, and particularly in the aftermath of COVID. COVID has massively rolled forward the frontiers of the state and it's going to be a real battle of our generation I think to roll them back again 
And I think they're at the point where it's deeply inefficient. We're taking 6% at a stroke of the margins of small and medium-sized enterprises, many of them, with this corporation tax increase. That's an absolutely ridiculous thing to do at a time when so many businesses are clinging on for dear life, particularly SMEs who were hammered during lockdown. A lot of the big companies were allowed to continue functioning. The SMEs got a lot less assistance. They haven't got monopoly buying power and supply chains. They're having to absorb all these costs. They're often indebted. They often have to pay more for their debt than the much bigger companies. And now you're whacking them with extra corporation tax? That's going to lead to less revenue. And to say that is heresy in certain parts of Whitehall. But it strikes me as common sense. They're doing that thing again, which I really dislike. It, you know, they, the, the word Labour always uses is gaslighting. But they did it very much during lockdown, didn't they? Which is that there was only one virtuous position that could be held. You had to be on the side of all these COVID measures, regardless of how patently ludicrous they were. And I get the feeling that they're trying to do that again with this. Of course, this is the sensible thing to do. We must raise taxes, give vast amounts of money to people on benefits and all these little people over here. As you say, we've had a couple of emails this week from small businesses where they've just rolled down the shutters now. Thrown in the towel. It's the final straw. This huge corporation tax, they just cannot. I mean, I will be reading some of them out later. Coming back to that thing you were saying about the institutional pushback, I thought of you this week when another brilliant example of ministerial bullying was going on because apparently Dominic Raab, when he was at the Justice Department, that senior civil servants felt threatened because he threw some tomatoes down and made a loud noise. <laughs> I thought first he'd <laughs> thrown tomatoes at an actual Sir Humphrey, but it turned out he'd actually thrown tomatoes noisily back into the Pret-a-Manger packet, <laughs> which as we know was... Um, I mean, you can't make this stuff up, Liam. Honestly, these people, they're desperate for another scalp, aren't they? It's literally, if anyone's coughed or used the wrong pronoun. Just coming back to now... We don't know the full details yet, do we, of what Jeremy's going to be laying on us. But it does seem that they've agreed to increase pensions and benefits in line with inflation. That's going to cost £11 billion. There was a report that Sunak and Hunt had accepted an official recommendation to increase the living wage from 9 50 an hour to about 10 40 an hour. That's a rise of nearly... 10%. We could certainly argue that maybe we need a slightly higher minimum wage. That move will benefit two and a half million people. Rishi's also going to give those on means tested benefits like universal credit. Cost of living payments worth £650. Disability benefit recipients £150. Pensioner households £300. There's some lucky households co pilot which will benefit from all three of the extra payments. And that all sounds very generous during a cost of living crisis. And who's going to be paying for that? That would be us, Liam. And the dwindling band of plucky workers who still think that they should have a job. So that we are facing this £33 billion of spending cuts. Don't know where that's going to come from. Certainly not going to come from RNHS. And £22 billion in tax rises. A couple of things that jumped out at me. Council tax... Local authorities could be allowed to increase council tax by 5% without a local referendum to fund social care. You'll remember that they've cancelled Boris's lifetime limit of 86000 on social care costs. Now, that was a very popular policy with Conservative voters. But who cares what they think? And as you say, co-pilot, lots and lots of stealth taxes, freezing the thresholds for income tax, national insurance, VAT, inheritance tax, on and on it goes. So basically, we're going to see an awful lot of people dragged into paying this higher rate. I'm just kind of astounded by it, really. It strikes me as being one of the most daring Labour budgets we've ever seen. What say you? I think it's egregious when... take. IHT inheritance tax. So the inheritance tax threshold was frozen after the 2008 financial crisis in the 2009 budget at 325 grand for each individual. So if you own a really modest house, the average house in this country, the average home, including apartments, 
is just under £300,000. So if you own a very, very modest family home indeed and you want to leave it to your kid, you could easily end up paying IHT at 40% above that £325,000 threshold because that threshold has been frozen since 2009, even though house prices have gone up a lot. And it's now going to be extended to, we think, if the speculation is right, all the way through to 2028. So for almost two decades, the IHT threshold has stayed where it is. And who's to say it won't be extended again at that level? And of course, that drags in the estates of more and more hardworking, ordinary people who have paid for those houses out of post-tax income, servicing mortgages, and then they're going to be whacked with tax again. And all they're doing is leaving a very, very modest home to their kids. And similarly, as you say, with income tax thresholds being frozen, that drags more and more people in. With child benefit thresholds being frozen, that means more and more people won't qualify for child benefit, as you wrote about in your column. And this is a deeply cynical exercise The only reason you freeze these thresholds instead of raising the actual tax rates is because you're trying to trick people. You're trying to tell them that you're not actually raising taxes when you are. Because even though journalists like me will go on and on and on and on about why a stealth tax is a tax rise, a lot of people, they're just too busy earning their money and living their lives and feeding their families to clock that. And so they won't see an actual increase in the tax rate when they stare blankly at their pay slip every week or every month. And in that sense, it breaks another bond of trust between individuals and the state that you're just freezing these tax thresholds to drag more and more people in to these high rates of tax. And this comes after a very, very high inflation number, Alison. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. We've just had an inflation number that's 11.1% in October. I'm afraid I don't think inflation has peaked A lot of people are saying it has, but I think you'll find when future historians look back. No, I won't say that again. The reason I don't think think high inflation has peaked is because of a statistic that I know you, Professor Verma, keep a close eye on. Yes. The PPI, the producer price index in October 22 compared to October 2021 was 19.2% higher. So the cost of the inputs that firms use to create the goods to create the services that they then sell to us, their inputs are up 19.2%. And that is stored up inflation that will have to come out in the future. And there's an awful lot of industries and an awful lot of companies, particularly smaller companies, as I said, where they're not passing on their cost pressures that they're experiencing in the supply chain to consumers because they're so worried about losing the market share. I mean, for instance, if breweries and publicans were passing on the full increase in the cost of delivering a pint of beer to a bar in front of you after you've ordered it in terms of the price of the barley, the wheat, the hops, all of that, the heating for the pub, the power to do the brewing, the fuel for the transportation and so on. They're transporting, you know, a heavy, low margin product. They'd be charging us if all those cost pressures were passed on, you know, in most parts of the country, well in excess of a tenner a pint. Now, that's completely unthinkable. No one would pay a tenner a pint, but that's where the cost is going. And in the end, it must get to that point. So you've got a lot of supply chain pressures still there that aren't yet being expressed, as shown by that 19.2% producer price index number, way, way above the consumer price index. And so it pains me to say it, but I do think inflation will get worse. The cost of living squeeze will get a lot worse before it gets better. And in that knowledge to then impose massive tax increases on people, tax increases that you're not even being honest and open about, it's deeply unwise, I think, to conduct fiscal policy in this way at this time. Obviously, there's that side of it. And then there's the creed de coeur I made in the column this week. What has this country got for our two trillion of debt? I mean, I think there's a strong case to be made for high taxes if we have excellent public services as they have in Norway, Sweden, you know, and in the in the Scandinavian countries. But we have rubbish public services. And I think that, you know, everywhere we look, I mean, Madeleine Grant, our colleague, wrote a very good piece yesterday, basically saying nothing works. She was saying that 
a friend had had his phone or laptop stolen. The Track My Phone app had uh, shown where the phone was, the exact address where the phone was. They called the police. So, you know, my phone's been stolen. This is the address where the people have got it. Not interested at all. So the stats for solving of, of, of crimes are, I mean, they're just pitiful, Liam. 6.6% of robbery offences and 4.2% of thefts in England and Wales resulted in a criminal charge in the year to December 2021. Absolutely pathetic. And we're going to talk about this more later on. But I cannot overstate now how bad I think the NHS is. I don't even think that the public, let alone the political class, has caught up with the truly dire developing country situation, our health services. This is not a health service fit for one of the richest countries in the world. We know we're now coming up to almost 8 million people On a hospital waiting list, that is predicted to swell to 9 million. I'm talking a lot at the moment to doctors and surgeons about the list they've got. The Institute for Fiscal Studies, you love this co-pilot, says that hospitals are carrying out fewer appointments and operations than before the pandemic, even in the face of this overwhelming catastrophe. And the NHS budget has increased... From 2019-2020, when it was 123.7 billion to the current 12-month figure, which is 151.8 billion, and you cannot get an operation on your knee. So what I'm saying is that these tax increases or the stealth taxes and the general austerity is going to be imposed against a background of entirely crumbling public services. Nothing works. We're on our own. Don't get ill. Don't get old. That's where we are in Britain in 2022, I'm afraid. And I know that sounds grim, but I actually think it's true. Right now, the whole world is watching China. It's the 20th Party Congress, a a twice-in-a-decade political set-piece that reveals the outcome of China's very secretive leadership selection. And there is, of course, only one man in the running. Xi Jinping. This is seismic. After the death of Chairman Mao Zedong, there has been a two-term limit on Chinese leaders. No more. Xi is on the cusp of effectively becoming ruler for life. Understanding him has never been more important. They turned this place into a hell. We're in Beijing. We we see business people got disappear by the state all the time. I mean, everything is protected and you're under constant watch. But reporting on Xi, well, that might be my toughest assignment yet. I've come into a bathroom now to try to upload all these files in case on my way out I get stopped and searched and they try to delete these. Despite 10 years in power, he remains a puzzle, one we know very little about beyond official propaganda. Who is he, really? How has he managed to build a cult of personality? What kind of a leader has this made him? And what does that mean for all of us? China under Xi doesn't like these sorts of questions. But I'm going to try and ask them anyway. I'm Sophia Yan, and this is How to Become a Dictator from The Telegraph. Now on to our interview. On Planet Normal, we really enjoy, don't we, Liam, talking to so-called normal people. They tend to be more extraordinary people, I think, than the famous names we talk to. And last week we had a perfect example in the Welsh hill farmer, Gareth Wynne-Jones. I've been really enjoying following Gareth on Twitter, where he posts his dawn ride with the sheep up the mountain. If you want to be taken away from the lunacy of the world, I can highly recommend watching Gareth on his little tractor going up the mountains of Snowdonia. Absolutely beautiful. And this week we have another extraordinary normal person. Planet Normal listeners will have heard before from Dr. Claire. Dr. Claire is a GP 
a GP of many years, a woman of enormous resilience and compassion who has told us before about what she's been facing in her general practice. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Liam, I was awake in the small hours, I don't know why, worrying about the children or something, and an email landed and it was from Claire. And it began with, I've just finished another 11-hour shift. Basically, she said she was just trying to console people, not cure people, just reassure and console the absolute wave of people coming into her surgery who she cannot secure any hospital appointments for. And she said she was in a state of frustration and despair. So I thought it would be incredibly interesting for us to hear from Dr. Clare about what her daily life holds at the moment as the NHS crumbles. So I began by asking Claire to tell us more about the demand that she's facing now as a busy GP. Yes, well, I've been a GP now for 35 years and I have really never seen it as it is now. The NHS really is at breaking point and it just isn't fit for purpose. So we do have this huge increase in demand, which is increasing all the time. Of course, things weren't great before the pandemic, but much worse since because, as we all know, the lockdowns caused a lot of problems for access to healthcare. So we're now seeing people who haven't been seen for years. They haven't had their routine checkups, scans, blood tests, blood pressure and so on, either with the GP or with the hospital, and their conditions have deteriorated. So we've got this huge backlog of people coming. We've got patients deteriorating on waiting lists, so they could have been treated as outpatients fairly simply, but now because they've been waiting so long, they've deteriorated, they've become urgent. We've got an ageing population with increasingly complex problems. So all this is adding up to a huge demand and we've got a major problem with access for people to both primary and secondary care and it just breaks my heart when I hear the stories on your Planet Normal of people who just can't get to see their doctor or they have these hopeless telephone consultations where they're told to send photos. You know, a 90-year-old with something on her back, how can they possibly do that? Would it be fair to say that there is an element of PTSD or post-lockdown stress disorder? Yes, definitely. I think, as I say, many people suffered hugely. Of course, some didn't. They enjoyed working at home, sitting in their hot tubs, enjoying the weather. But as we know, many people couldn't do that. People suffered terribly and they were alone. They weren't allowed to have help. So it really caused a lot of suffering, which I think it's going to take a long time to recover from. Can you give us some examples of the kind of deterioration you're saying we know that cancer is now being picked up late. Are there other illnesses? Yes, well, obviously, there's these sort of life-threatening things, the cancers and the heart disease particularly, and we know that they haven't been dealt with as they would have been in the past. And I think hospital doctors are trying hard to see them. But probably more of what I see are people who haven't got life-threatening conditions, but certainly conditions which are really affecting their quality of life. So, for example, just in the last week or so, an elderly lady waiting for a total hip replacement who cares for her husband with dementia, she can now hardly walk and she's asking me if she should go private if she should use their meagre savings because she can barely look after them anymore and it can go on and on. We've just heard that hospital waiting lists are probably about to tip over into 8 million people and something that jumped out at me a record 2.5 million are not working now due to long-term sickness. That doesn't surprise you does it? Not at all. I say they are on waiting lists for treatments. And uh, so though they won't die of these conditions, it's stopping them working, it's stopping them caring for people, it's causing them immense pain and distress and suffering. We've heard a lot about struggles to get to a GP appointment. I don't think people are as aware of how hard it is for you to get a patient seen at a hospital. Can you just tell us the kind of referral system that you have to go through. Yes, it really is jumping through all sorts of hoops and filling in a horrendous number of forms. So in the old days, when I started as a GP, 
I would write a letter to a consultant who'd receive it the next day and send an appointment and deal with the patient. It's nothing like that now. So in some specialties, we have a triage system called single point of access where we can't refer a patient to a specialist or to a hospital. We have to refer to this community service. They're eventually seen by someone who decides if they get a hospital appointment or some other sort of treatment. Quite often they can't deal with it, have to refer them on. So it's just wait, wait, wait. So, for instance, let me give you an example. Single point of access in our area covers orthopaedics, rheumatology and physiotherapy. So if I see a patient who needs a total hip replacement, they've got a terrible hip, bone on bone, I have to refer through this complicated system, working through a number of sheets of the referral form. And at the end, it tells me that the patient's going to be referred to physiotherapy. Do I agree? Now, if I say no, the referral is cancelled. If I say yes, I know it's totally the wrong route. So I just have to say yes and write on the form that actually the patient needs a hip replacement. So delay and delay. Other specialties, most specialties, again, I can't refer to a consultant at all. I have to send an email asking for what they call advice and guidance. I then sit and wait, sometimes for weeks, and we're waiting for them to respond. And they might give me some advice as to how to manage the patient in general practice. Generally speaking, I wouldn't be referring if I could have done that and then they might decide to send an appointment to the patient at which point they wait again to get an appointment and that's not to necessarily have treatment that's just to see the consultant. I wonder if it is to keep the number on the waiting list down you know, so it looks better. That's exactly what I am afraid with my cynical journalist hat on that's what I was going to ask you Are these delaying tactics too? Well, it may be, but it certainly creates an enormous amount of extra work for us. It's so complicated now. In the old days, I would just ring up the district nurse and say, would you go and see Mrs. So-and-so? She's got a leg ulcer. And she would say, yes, sure, today or tomorrow. I'd give the name and address and that was it. Now there's three A4 sheets of paper that have to be filled in. And if I get a tiny detail wrong, the referral is rejected. It comes back to me a week or so later and I have to fill in the form all over again. They can't just ring up and say, can you just tell me this bit of information? No, it has to be done all over again. Or if I use an outdated form, the forms seem to be changed every two or three weeks. And if you use one that's out of date, even though it's got the same information on it, it's returned and you have to do it all over again. So we're completely drowning in paperwork and pointless data collection for bean counters somewhere it certainly makes no difference to patient care it seems to me in fact it makes it a lot worse it doesn't improve patient access at all. You said to me when we spoke a while ago that even with things like cardiac patients they would sometimes bounce it back suggesting that you do your best in the surgery. Yes, and sometimes that works. You know, sometimes they can make a suggestion of a change in medication or whatever, and that will work. So, you know, some specialties, it does work. They can just give us some advice. We do something that saves the referral, but in many, it doesn't. And that's the problem. It's across the board now that we just can't access secondary care. I know you've been very dedicated and determined throughout to try and see your patients face to face. You told me you thought it was ridiculous really to try and do this telephone appointments because you always ended up needing to see them to be sure anyway. Why are so many GPs, Claire, still not seeing patients face to face? I don't know. I can understand at the beginning of the pandemic that none of us knew what we were dealing with. Some of the GPs around here died of COVID they were in the vulnerable groups. If we'd continued at that point in the normal way, bringing everybody into the surgery, crowded waiting rooms, of course, the COVID would have spread to, you know, through the patients sitting in the waiting room. And of course, it's mainly old and vulnerable people or largely in the waiting room. So that was an issue, of course. And if we'd all caught COVID, we'd have had to shut the surgery down, the workforce would have been decimated. So I can understand that although it was a horrible way to work with phone consultations and then just seeing the people who really needed to be seen face to face, I understand why they did it. In my view, this has gone on far too long that I've now been seeing everybody fully face to face for over a year and I do not understand why other surgeries aren't. It was told us that the vaccines would enable normal service to resume but it just hasn't and even in surgeries like mine which are fully face to face the waits are still too long. So my attitude is people on the left will say oh my goodness if we stop it being a free at the point of use NHS you know it'll 
create a two-tier system where the rich get better health care. And I actually think, hello, that's happening already, isn't it? Well, it is, yes. Yes, I mean, I still don't feel that we necessarily the answer is to throw more money at it. It has to be about better use of the money. There's such huge waste of NHS resources. And I know this is something that drives you and me around the bend. For instance, you know, equality and diversity managers, you know, on salaries of 70,000. How does that help me? How does that help me help a patient? How does it help the patients? I read that in June of this year, there were 400 such managers at a cost of 12 million a year. I think we could think of better ways for that money to be spent you know what does that actually achieve for the patient the layer upon layer upon layer of management as far as I can see you know so I've been a GP 35 years now and I've seen the number of managers increase exponentially while the number of clinical staff either stay the same or go down so in the last couple of years as we know the number of clinical staff is roughly the same but NHS managers and Department of Health officials have doubled there just aren't enough doctors and nurses there's a cap of 7,500 for medical training places. We know on Planet Normal there are thousands of highly qualified young people, terrific grades, who want to become doctors. They just can't get a place. Why is there this limit, do you think, on places? I just don't know because, as you say, the need's there and we're importing clinical staff from other countries. In the 2019 manifesto, I believe they said there were going to be another 6,000 GPs by 2024. I don't know quite how they can manage that because it takes nine years to train a GP from scratch. But I don't see any signs of that. And what's more, a third of GPs are expected to retire in the next five years. That's 19,000 you know, we're going to have a massive crisis. I should be retired by now, but I just can't, I can't do that while people in so much need. I can't do much about the whole country, but I can do what I can do for a small number of people in my orbit. And it seems a pitiful drop in the ocean. But there is a desperate need of more doctors. And then, of course, you've got clinical staff stressed because they're so much under pressure and going off sick. And that just makes the whole thing worse. So coming to just this GP shortage, it seems to me, first of all, we knew many years ago that more women doctors were heading for GP work because that was more reconcilable with family life. Well, you wouldn't have had to have been a genius to predict that you were going to need to increase the number of GP training places if you were going to have more female GPs who wanted to work part-time. So we've got that problem. We also, I understand, have a problem with the pensions, which they set a cap on how much you could contribute into your pension. And as soon as people were hitting that limit, then GPs were peeling off and retiring early. Can you comment, Claire, on those two problems? As far as I understand it, it's more of a problem with hospital consultants because my understanding is they're on higher salaries. It isn't an issue for me because I'm salaried, I'm not a partner, so I've always been on relatively low pay scale. But yes, you're absolutely right. And it's true that because actually the majority of GPs are women, that of course, a lot of them, probably the majority of them, work part-time. We've seen recently one A&E doctor talking about one in three beds being blocked in hospitals. I mean, this is a problem of them not having anywhere to go on to. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. So this is dire lack of care workers. So there's 165,000 care worker vacancies at the moment. But the reality is we've got huge vacancies, which means that one in three beds across England are blocked by people who are well enough to be discharged but there's nowhere for them to go because we don't have care workers. So when we see the ambulances unable to drop patients off at the front door that's because the system is so backed up with people. Yes absolutely I mean we didn't have a vast number of spare beds before COVID, probably not enough beds for the system. And of course, the number of beds were reduced during COVID because of this spacing. So you had less in a ward. And that's not gone back to what it was before. So we were already down on beds. And now we've got this massive bed blocking. As an outside observer, during this whole period, I've just been really taken aback by how inflexible the NHS is. So George, our wonderful NHS England insider told me that during COVID, even though it was the height of the pandemic, they were still unable to discharge patients quickly because the pharmacies wouldn't work over the weekend. So they couldn't get 
the drugs to go home. Not that there was anything urgent happening or anything, but it just seems to be a sort of, well, we've never done that before, so we're not doing it now mentality. Well, of course, hospitals are staffed and work at weekends, but of course, it is just mainly maintaining people. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? But, you know, there may be some way of having a shift system. Like when I worked in hospitals, you know, you did every other weekend, you were on duty. We're seeing, Claire, we're seeing this actually shocking now number of excess deaths, hundreds of excess deaths a week, and they are not COVID deaths. In fact, the number of excess deaths a week is now exceeding the number we saw during the pandemic. How much do you think is the inability to see a doctor or get treatment implicated in those numbers? Well, it has to be, doesn't it? But also patients who are stuck in hospital who are, I say, deteriorating and catching other things because they can't go home. So it's not being able to get in and it's not being able to get out, isn't it? It's both those things. So yes, I think a lot of this has to do with the lockdown policies and all the aftermath of that. It's all the factors that we've already discussed. When you are in the surgery, I know you're trying to do face-to-face, but what listeners are saying to us is that they're caught in this hellish loop of ringing up at 8am and then being told you're 37th in the queue. And I did a panel recently at the Battle of Ideas about GPs. There were GPs on the panel. I have to say, Claire, you meet quite a lot of resistance when you point out the problems. I find them very defensive. Yes, as I say, I just don't understand why any doctor is doing telephone surgeries, why they're not doing face-to-face. But even with that, it comes back again to this huge demand that there is. There just aren't enough doctors. There are not enough clinical staff to meet the demand that there is. And then if we can't get secondary care and tests for our patients, they deteriorate, they become more ill, they need to be seen more often. So it is just that the supply and the demand just don't match in any way at all. We need more beds, we need more tests, we need more doctors, so we need more care workers. What would you say? We have a new health secretary now. He's been in the post for at least a week. What would you say to Steve Barclay? What would you like to see done immediately? I would ask him to train and recruit more clinical staff. I'd ask him to cut all this woke stuff and the COVID waste I'd ask him to reduce managers, to get rid of these endless forms and the bureaucracy that's obstructing patient access and relieve us of this mountain of paperwork so that we can see more patients so we'd be better used. We need more beds and testing facilities and just let us access secondary care in a way that doesn't take hours. Let us use the spare capacity in the private hospitals as we used to do. And maybe, I don't know if there's any way we can help people take more charge of their own health. I say they become very dependent on the government telling them where they can go and when they can go. It's difficult because I'd say self-manage when it's appropriate because what we don't want is people to be dissuaded from coming to the surgery as happened during the pandemic. But I think society's become very selfish as a result of the pandemic, a lockdown where people were not allowed to help each other. And that's not helping us either. So people come to their GP because there really isn't anyone else they can turn to. But yes, it's very difficult. I do think people need to complain. They need to write to hospital managers. They need to write to their MPs. So as someone who regularly writes to my MP, it is frustrating. But I think unless we flag it up, nothing's going to change. It probably won't change if we do flag it up. But at least then you feel you've done all you can. So for me, I say all I can do is do the best I can in my little area with the patients I've got. But it does greatly sadden me to know the desperate situation that many people are in. Well, Claire, I have to say that I think you're not just making a little difference. We think you're doing a fabulous job and please keep us in touch with everything that you're doing. Thank you. And please keep doing what you're doing. A most authoritative interview there. Alison and Dr. Claire wasn't bad either. (laughs) Dr. Claire, of course, that is a pseudonym. Dr. Claire prefers to appear anonymously because of fear of backlash within the NHS for speaking out. We last heard from her on Planet Normal back in November 2020, and I know you're in communication with her quite often. It's also worth going back, isn't it, to 
that interview we did with Tim Knox back in May of this year, 2022. Tim Knox yeah. wrote a piece for the think tank Civitas comparing clinical outcomes across a whole range of healthcare systems, mainly in Western Europe, but also in the States. And even though many, many other healthcare systems have free at the point of use healthcare as well, even though the NHS is funded pretty much as well as any other healthcare system in the world, our clinical outcomes are pretty much at the bottom of the table across a range of crucial diagnostics, not least heart disease, stroke and oncology. What I really value is hearing the nitty gritty from Claire. So we know that there are these, this is a terrible situation. You know, what she said is not being able to get patients into hospital and not being able to get patients out of hospital. seems to me, Liam, with this autumn statement today and these stealth taxes and so on, the state is not even doing the basics, right? Claire has got patients who need cataract operations so they can do their jewellery work, teachers who are off for months because they've got something wrong with their leg. They cannot even get a preliminary appointment. And what really struck me was her talking about this new referral system, which I would say has been introduced as a ruse to keep patients off the expanding hospital waiting list. Claire says she can make one mistake with ethnicity and she'll be sent back to square one. Can you imagine this, Liam? Can you imagine what's going on? Even in her one surgery in London, she says she spends much of her day trying to console and offer reassurance. She's not even able to see other people. She's literally dealing with people who cannot even get a preliminary hospital appointment. Against the background of these tax rises, it seems to me we've got fundamental questions to ask. Is the British state doing the job that's required to give people what they deserve, the basics of medical care with the taxes that they pay in the expectation that they would be allowed to have a hospital appointment. Now onto our listener emails, the messages you send to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely love to read your thoughts. You won't be surprised to hear that we've had an awful lot of reactions this week to the horrible choices that Mr Hunt has had to make for his autumn statement. I will not be held hostage, says George, to the canard that Labour will be even worse. What are they going to do? Increase government spending to a trillion pounds per annum? The Tories covered that. Open the borders? Nah. The Tories checked that off in 2010. Treat the NHS like a bottomless pit? Nope. The Tories covered that too. What can honestly be said about the political state of affairs that isn't shambolic? We got Brexit, a crumbled loaf with flowery lumps in the mix. I will be voting third party next election and I will continue to do so until the entire Tory party is dead or an actual Conservative party takes its place. I'm done. And Andrew says on the same topic, there are loads of these, Liam, 40% tax. Then, from what's left, £2,000 council tax, huge fuel bills, food prices through the roof, catastrophic public services, 50% of people paying nothing, 5.3 million people on universal credit. Tax riot, anyone? And fresh in from Vince, dear co-pilots, thank goodness for your refuge of common sense. Following the predictable mainstream media and listening to the demands of the public sector unions for the last few weeks, you could end up thinking that the only thing to shut them up is to award everyone in the country a 20% pay rise and increase the top rate of tax to 100%. But I think Harold Wilson and Ted Heath tried something like that before. As Alison has said, no political party in the UK now bothers to represent the great bulk of overtaxed, overcharged and underserved ordinary taxpayers and consumers. Is it time for something like the New Zealand ACT, the Alliance of Taxpayers and Consumers, to emerge and say enough and point out that the emperor of the state, the NHS, big business and all have no new clothes? Best wishes, Vince. This is from Colin Allison in the same vein. We've had so many along these lines. 
If I have to put up with these stupendous tax rises, writes Colin, I would sooner be under a Labour government than a Tory one. That's how much I want Rishi Sunak out. But the Conservatives already know this. Otherwise, both Boris Johnson and Penny Mordaunt wouldn't have stepped down when they did, leaving a clear path for the man that got us into this mess in the first place. We're not subject to democracy anymore. Sunak doesn't even think he's bound by the party's manifesto, which is what he got voted in for. He can't meet his obligations when it was predicted by many that his policies would bring on this devastation. Then we should have the opportunity to remove him before he can do more damage. Unless, of course, the whole purpose of the exercise was to ensure the population was placed into indentured servitude for many decades to come. In which case, the people to which puppet Sunak is answering must be pleased. We've unbacked unelected idiots in the two most important jobs in our country. Twice failed Sunak and 18 supporters hunt. That's from Colin. A lot of anger out there, Alison. I was really struck, Liam. I often get quite a lot of comments under my column, but I think it was as we were recording, it was approaching 3,000 Telegraph readers all going to take their toys to play elsewhere, really. There is a lot of anger. This is Jane. I'm so angry I can't even look at Sunak and Hunt without feeling intense rage. I'm sure I'm not the only one. The social contract is broken, not by us, but by our cowardly government. And I like this one very much, Liam, from Anonymous. Vote for whoever you like. You get blob. Would you like more blob with that blob? There's no such thing as the Conservative Party. There are just slightly different flavours of blob who follow the same catastrophic socialist policies with a few minor variations. Sunak was probably born blob. Johnson was not blob when he was elected, but was unfortunately swallowed whole by blob shortly afterwards. Trust was not blob, so had to be eliminated. Blob, 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 blob. (laughs) Take your pick, because nothing else is or ever will be on offer. Blob. It's like the um, flower pot man, isn't it? I I say he sounds a bit like Bill and Ben there. (laughs) Here's a slightly lighter one. Dear Alison and Liam, I hugely enjoy Planet Normal and I wanted to let you know, says Chris. I think your weekly analysis of the political scene is fabulous. I love the banter and that you articulate the issues and analyse the behaviours we see week after week. But more than that, I enjoy your sense of humour and that you don't take yourselves too seriously. Bravo. By the way, Alison, I'm a Haverford West boy. For me, when I was growing up before I left... Carmarthen was, quotes, the Far East. Rock on, guys. You've got a loyal fan. Bless you both. Chris, Haverford West born, covered with fertiliser and still around. Oh, yeah. Haverford West, that's practically in your country, Halligan. (laughs) And Maggie says, I have listened to every Planet Normal since you began. I've enjoyed most of your guests, but Gareth, the Welsh Hill farmer, has to be the most inspirational of them all. He was brilliant. Woo! I totally agree with him about proper food, but listening to him has made me more determined to buy local and seasonal as much as possible. We need to hear from more people like him who talk so much sense. If only all those people falling for the eco nonsense could hear what he has to say i'm sure we'd get more on our side keep up the good work god bless maggie and on the same theme actually james says nice you had a farmer on but please be aware the experiences of the various sectors hill farmers dairy farmers vegetable growers soft fruit growers livestock producers and arable farmers are all very different here in east midlands arable we've had a fantastically easy harvest with the lovely weather bequeathed to us by cop 26 with bumpy yields and Putin-boosted prices. OK, next year will be tougher with much higher input costs, but right now we're happy as Larry. Meanwhile, the 60% produced at home is about consumer choice and international trade, something I thought Planet Normal would be in favour of. If some cataclysm stops us importing food, we won't run out. It'll just be like going to a supermarket in the 1970s. As for food security... Green policies provide the biggest risk. See Sri Lanka. We'll be forced to grow wildflowers, solar panels and wind turbines, says James. Well, thank you very much. Lovely to hear from an arable farmer in the East, James. Happy as Larry. That comes from a a boxer called Larry Foley in the 1890s before boxing was fully legalised. He won a huge prize down under in New Zealand and the newspaper headline was Happy as Larry, you heard it here first. And on that bombshell, Alison, that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave the sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week, it has to be Vince. Vince, send us your postal address and you will get a Rarest Rocking Horse Poo Planet Normal mug. Email 
planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. And if you enjoy Planet Normal, and we jolly well hope you do, please do leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It not only helps others to find us, it makes co-pilot Halligan really happy because he reads them frequently and tells me they're brilliant. I do. (laughs) Keep your emails coming. They're the lifeblood of this show. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampitt, and our editor, No Hitch, with Zoe Hitch. Stay safe in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.